What is good, everyone? This is the podcast mercenary, the Mike for Hire, the Puerto Rican powerhouse, Christian Joel Ramos, back in it again with a brand new review. And today's review is none other than a continuation of where we left off, and that is the HBO Max original show, The Watchmen. We are now on episode three. I took a little break from this because, you know, I need to make time in a day. You'd be surprised how much time it takes to review something, but it's a lot of... Uh, Hours, uh, I won't say hours, but just you gotta put time aside for this stuff. You can't just, you know, nilly willy just toss together taking notes. But enough of that, let's get to this. So, we start off with the FBI agents and vigilante hunting squad, I guess you can call them, um, helmed by one um, agent, Laurie Blake. Name sounds familiar? You'll see why soon. Um, she is sent to Tulsa to take over a murder investigation. This is obviously Sheriff Judd's murder that just occurred, so you know, it's on that same parameters. Uh, essentially, she got uh, recruited by the senator of Oklahoma, the guy that's running for a re-election or presidential election, I believe, at the current time. So yeah, so essentially she's being recruited because the senator knows she's really good at her job. And yes, if you are a comic buff, you would know that this is actually None other than the former Silk Spectre, um, Laurie Blake. Same exact lady, just 30 plus years later. Uh, you know, 85 was a long time ago. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, people age. That's just a natural thing that happens, apparently, but time goes on, right? So, detective, or, I'm sorry, agent. She's not a detective. She is in the FBI. So, she's actually a federale. Uh, so, she's uh, sent over by the senator recruited I guess you can say and um, she was actually previously like before they introduced who she is she's in a scene robbing a bank and a vigilante shows up but it's actually a whole thing's a setup it's a trap to just capture the vigilantes there was an actual bank robbery this was the feds setting up a sting operation to get the uh, uh, vigilantes this is a very uh, uh, well, elaborate, well done, fake heist because no one expected this to be legitimately like you know, one big ass thing operation. They literally thought it was just a regular bank robbery and the guy was going to stop something. So he gets caught and he on his way out to escape, he actually uh, gets shot in the back by um, Blake. And um, it's funny the moment happens where one of the feds like, how did you know that his body, his uh, body armor would uh, not get penetrated by the bullets? In her face, you can still tell that she's. You can tell that she's like remorseless. Like she doesn't give a flying f bomb if he was killed or not. She shot him regardless because she's a stone cold bitch. <laughs> so this character definitely changed a lot since the eighties. Since Doctor Manhattan left her to go to Mars and be this, you know, intergalactic yogi. Since you went, Doctor Manhattan became after he secluded himself in isolation on freaking Mars of all places. So. Where the relief off here. Um, this is where the senator from Oklahoma visits her hotel room and is like checking out her pet owl that she has in a cage and um, talks about the Revenger, but it wasn't the Revenger. The Revenger was the vigilante that she caught the previous month, so she's on a roll now. It, this was actually Mr. Shadow. And the guy looked a lot like Big uh, Big Daddy from uh, Kick Ass. Well, like a combination of Big Daddy, Owlman, and Batman. Very similar, you know, aesthetic. So this guy runs a well he's a senator right he runs an organization with the police in his city or even his state at this point called dopa i know it sounds stupid like dopes 
Department of, um, I believe, Vigilante, some, something of the acronym, I forgot. There's a task force for capturing vigilantes, and it's getting adopted in other big cities like L.A., uh, ATL, New Orleans, Denver, uh, places where things are popping up. You know, a lot of uh, vigilanteism is happening, a lot of uh, anti-law, anti-police sentiment. So this thing really resonates with, like, quote-unquote, you know, white supremacists and the seven cavalry and vigilantes with the antifa you know correlations like this is a year before 2020 even started where there wasn't much issues in these things it almost seems like this show was like a premonition of things to come kind of like the level of severity of things getting riled up to the point of uh you know tensions risen so if this show came out this year, it would seem too on the nose on what's going on. But that's a good thing because it would be very relevant. So it's ahead of its time by a freaking year. Like it predicted shit was going to go down. Or this is just a natural transgressions of, you know, cause and effect with um, the previous Watchmen. So there is a lot of political anecdotes in the Watchmen comic with real life. But also, there's a what if scenario. So these are kind of like what if scenarios that actually are actually occurring, where we're having white supremacists like the Proud Boys and other organizations, you know, and um, the Klan who are still freaking out there in 2020. I don't know why they still exist, and you know the anti-police sentiment. I know that a lot of that's happening too. People are starting to attack. It's getting all ugly out here. So this show really, really hits the nose on um, tensions arising. So. They're making a briefing of the Southern Cavalry in some headquarters as they're going to head out to Tulsa. And they're not even amused by one of the uh, agent's uh, little uh, slides where he puts an antidote from Rorschach's book. They're like, why are you putting an antidote from 1985? And they're like, because this is their basis of their mantra of how they became, like, I don't care. We're dealing with 2020 problems. And he's like, and I'm thinking to myself, you're damn right you're dealing with 2020 problems. Let's just focus on the, today's issues. This guy was a fan out of a freaking Rorschach and like the legacy he left. But I get it. It kind of ties into like the psyche of these men, like kind of like Mein Kampf for like the freaking Nazis, you know, like something in that book kind of riled them up. So it's a it's a real matter of essentially dealing with um, weird sentiments of not feeling like you know. I mean, these guys are strict racist. I'm not gonna make an excuse for them being racist, but they're almost like. No, they literally are terrorists. They're just going to that severity of extremism to um, keep things how they are, quote-unquote, status quo, all that bullshit. So here we got, and there's a raid. They're having Oklahoma as they're arriving. Blake's there with one of the younger federal agents. This guy at Hertz spoke on the plane of all places that uh, it's like a private jet. She was brushing her teeth on the flight as he was trying to, you know, give her notes and she was making fun of him for being such a, like, a freaking, like, superhero vigilante fanboy. It's not that he's a fanboy or a big fan of hers, because he knows who she was in her past life. She was a freaking vigilante herself. She was one of the original Watchmen, or, you know, second-gen Watchmen, because her mom was the original, so expect her, but, you know. So, he's like, no, I literally had to do research on all this stuff, so I know what I'm getting myself into, what we're dealing with, and just so I can know more, so they're going in blind. So, don't think I'm fanboying. I'm just asking questions to know what the hell made people go from point A to point B to point, you know, and how things happen. So they're there, almost like a sting operation outside of the van waiting for something to happen. And there's actually a raid that uh, I guess the local police already have caught. 
pen. They go and talk to, uh, you know, Agent Blake goes talking for a guy who goes by the uh, alias of Looking Glass. Obviously, we know who Looking Glass is from a previous episode. This guy with the mirrored mask that was like the lead detective on uh, the sheriff's case and also in the local police county. And they talk, and he's there, like, almost giving interrogations to reveal these guys are, you know, one by one, who's part of the 7 Cavalry, who secretly is a racist, because he has this, like, you know, um, psychology um, dome, almost like a UFO, where he puts, like, um, Rorschach-like tests, and if whatever image they're triggered by, you can tell if someone's tension is risen, almost like a lie detector meets a racial, you know, like, how do you react to seeing the images of people of color versus people that look like you, you know? It's a very simple and realistic thing. It's like one of these psych tests where they can see what makes you tick. And she's doing it one by one, a big line of farm guys, you know, that just are out here, quote unquote, working. And, you know, Detective Blake, I mean, sorry, keep saying detectives, keep thinking of this. Agent Blake, there we go, is here um, getting amused by Looking Glass, but acting dumb on purpose, almost like to annoy him because he's well aware how the feds are and she's well aware how liked the feds are by local um, municipal cops. So he's there like, fine, here's my real name, it's Wade. What do you want? You know my name. Because she said, call him by his last name. So he, he took his mask off and he's like, all right, since you're to know who I am. She's apparently looking for Angela. Um, Angela Barr, um, he calls her Ms. Knight, you know, reeling her alias, and they're like, where is she? Well, she's actually at Judd's, uh, who's a sheriff that just got killed and hung, hang, sorry, and um, a funeral, and she's there to give a eulogy and just took a personal day off, you know, and, you know, Agent Blake can um, relate to that, like, ah, that's kind of rough, all right, I'm going to go and let me get put on something darker and grimmer, I guess, and head to the funeral. So they head over there, and um, they, you know, there's a lot of, you know, cops there asking for guns. And like, even though they're federal agents, they politely and respectfully give their guns away to keep, you know, things from arising, whatever, like any kind of tensions. I doubt it. It's all cops here, anyways, right? And they talk to Angela Abar, aka Sister, uh, Sister Knight. So they head out to Judge's funeral to speak to her. And Angela gives a eulogy, a very. Um, touching like song, chorus or uh, verse, whatever. Everyone starts singing along. Where it kind of like must have been a bar song they all sing together or something. Because he was a big uh, Oklahoma uh, play uh, actor. Like he acted before he became a detective slash sheriff slash cop. So he was very much into musical theater. And that was their thing. And they're there. It was touching. So they talk, and she's looking little bit grim obviously who wanted your quote-unquote best friend you both took a bullet the same night that these seven cavalry guys started attacking the police officers uh, personal homes and whatnot and then out of nowhere mind you they check everyone at the door no one can sneak in because it's a gated cemetery so you think a freaking suicide bomber with dynamite sticks around him shows up and makes a big scene for senator joseph king jr at judge's funeral and it's one of those things where, like, man, this thing kind of, like, seems a little bit too close to home at this point. But, hey, reality gets ugly. It is what it is, right? So this is, like, a show that really is contemporary in nature without even trying to be in a way, sort of. Um, but, yeah, it really hits. 
So the suicide bomber's making threats. He takes the senator. Senator goes peacefully because dynamite. I don't know if you guys understand how freaking explosive dynamite is. One stick of dynamite has a good blast radius. So I think of 100 feet as far as I can recall. They used to blow up mine shafts with dynamite sticks. So it is very um, explosive and it's very uh, unpredictable substance too. So one wrong move and this guy's trigger finger goes off everybody goes out so as they're getting distracted by the suicide squad uh, suicide squad suicide uh, bombers uh, little uh, riff Blake agent Blake had a secret gun she gave her gun at the door but they didn't check her other gun and she shoots him one bullet knocks him out just triggering his bomb thing right and this is where things get kind of hairy because like oh shit it's gonna go off any second these old people are not gonna run fast enough to run away from the blast so what are we gonna do and it gets really uh tense for a second so blake takes out the bomber angela's toss the body she drags him into the freaking open grave six foot under to avoid this massive damage radius of explosion right she tosses the casket on top of the guy in the you know the pit where he's gonna where, where actually John is supposed to get buried and it explodes and makes a big blast radius not as big as one would have thought because it's underground but you know for her being on her feet thinking like that quickly it helped you know people, people getting injured or killed you know so Blake takes out the bomber she does this and she they look at each other like okay we both kind of messed up on this thing don't we because it is what it is you do the best of your abilities especially when Something like this arises out of nowhere, right? No one's expecting a freaking uh, cop killing at a funeral for a cop. I mean, it's just, you know, especially how do you even get in? So we go back to a different scene where this rich old scientist from previous episodes, I keep coming back to this character. I'm thinking to myself, he has to be important. This weird, like, um, Frankenstein's monster, like, clone guy, he goes out trying to make a suit. So for submerging underwater, I believe, in cold waters. And the clone that he puts in there is very confident because he trusts this, this scientist slash author slash playwright, whatever his actual uh, profession is. He, it's like a freaking jack of all trades. He dabbles in everything. So now he's making uh, submerging uh, scuba diving gear, and it fails miserably as he's picking up the dead corpse of one of his clones, kicking at it, swearing at it. And then his other, the other clone, like same guy, comes through like, uh, so I'm assuming it didn't pass. He's, it's a failure. And he's like, yep, I have to go back to the drawing board and make a thicker uh, hide or whatever so he can not freeze to death. So he goes out hunting on a horseback, I guess to kill this buffalo. Because he, I don't know if he was killing, killing the buffalo to eat it or just for like, to like a stress relief, like people go hunting just to be out. And as he's trying to hunt a buffalo, he can't claim it because a masked man on a horse shoots at his foot as like a warning, like, don't you dare claim that buffalo you just killed. It. So I'm assuming it's a different man's property, like a farm somewhere. So he goes back to the mansion furious. I mean, I feel bad for the maid and butler that they're singing for he's a jolly good fellow holding a cake, and he just grabs the cake and destroys it. And he storms off to do naked yoga. And then they go in to give him a note, a letter from the game warden. So the game warden was definitely there watching this man. He sends him a letter to cease and desist his actions before he faces the consequences. You cannot kill off-season. You cannot kill things. If you know the hunting laws in any country, you can't kill when you're not supposed to. 
it's a big fine and you're affecting the ecosystem of the place where things are happening so that being said i'm pretty sure this guy was aware he just wanted to do something real quick to like relieve the stress of his failures so i i feel for the guy but i don't because what are you doing shooting endangered animals buffalo of all the freaking animals you could have shot deer bears gators i don't care what other wild animals but buffalo come on man and it was like a mini one too it wasn't even like a full-grown buffalo either so he sends back a letter replying with a bunch of like uh rich man uh crybaby anecdotes uh, and then he puts his name in the end adrian fights it's ozymandias Jeremy Irons is Ozymandias, the villain from the film, the guy, well, the villain from the comic, too, who is now an old, riggedy, raggedy-ass, no offense, Jeremy Irons, old man, bitter, who probably spent most of his fortunes just being a philanthropist after, like, he retired the superhero lifestyle and all this. He, I can, It all makes sense now why this character kept reappearing in small segments. It was giving us an uh, eye view of... Uh, Ozymandias, sorry, life outside of uh, being a quote-unquote hero and uh, anti-hero to then villain. So Ozymandias is a lot older now, it makes sense. You know, it's been 30 plus years. Actually, yeah, for sure. And back at the graveyard, Angela is there using night vision goggles to find how the hell this several cavalry suicide bomber was even getting into this um, graveyard apparently he dug his way in bugs bunny style so this huge man-sized gopher hole leading outside the gates right in there when i noticed that's kind of weird and then who's there finds angela none other than uh laurie blake again finds her confronts her about everything you're not really retired vigilante you're still active yada yada you, you know, just come on, help me out here. Help me, help you, help me. So the episode ends. Now, this brought the whole episode, right? Lori has been kind of like talking to Dr. Manhattan. There was this moment where she was in this museum. It looked like the Watchmen headquarters or it looked like a shrine for the Watchmen. Almost like, you know, uh, like the Hall of Justice or the Justice League. It's, it's turned into a giant museum, right? I'm pretty sure it's the same museum that Angela went to to check on her... Um, um, reparations for you know Oklahoma Tulsa fire incident. Assuming it's the exact same place, I don't know. It's somewhere like it's a headquarters, but it also looks like a NASA base. It looks like a lot of things. Museum, you can call it whatever you want. And there's a booth where you can send a phone call to Doctor Manhattan. So I'm assuming this is her way of able to keep in touch with her ex after all these years, just to vent and talk. And she throughout the whole episode gives this weird joke where essentially she's dissecting all the three characters that, like, were the quote-unquote best watchmen, you know, Owl, uh, Night Owl, uh, herself, and, and Dr. Manhattan, and using God as, like, this judgment call for how they viewed their superhero ways and lifestyle. And she definitely seems very cynical of her past. I mean, she even has kind of a gross to even envision an older lady who personally owns a big ass blue dildo so that's pretty whoa she's very sexual i think she even hired a hooker in this episode so this character has definitely been some things it doesn't really give a shit about anything so she like is just so disconnected from feelings she's just very robotic and after losing the quote-unquote love of your life 30 plus years ago maybe no, no one can compete with this godlike being of dr manhattan so it's kind of a hard uh shoes to fill right and um 
she's there and she confronts Dr. Manhattan after her joke is up because her time's almost up, you know, almost like a, you know, a call collect. And she vents a little and walks out and then it ends with a freaking car falling from the sky right in front of her. And she just stares at the moon. But the moon's actually red, so it almost looks like she's staring at Mars. And she's cackling. Like, this is like, he definitely heard her message at Mars. Because this phone call will go straight to him, apparently. I thought it was a whole freaking gag for, like, you know, tourism. Like, here, speak to Dr. Manhattan. Leave a message. Like, kind of like Santa Claus. No, he heard it. He heard it all. And it was like a... You know, head nod. He hasn't appeared for 30 plus years on Earth because he thinks he's above humanity because he's, again, this deity figure that has to figure out his own existence. And if you read the recent DC comics, Dr. Manhattan has become like the Krang or like Galactus figure in um, the DC world, which is an actually perfect role for the guy. So, I mean, character that powerful, how are you going to make I mean, he's even more powerful than Superman when you think about it. So, it's one of those things where this guy can literally make and create, uh, can kill you with a snap of his fingers. So that's how the episode three ends. We get to see Silk Spectre much older, and uh, it is what it is, you know, like, we're seeing Ozymandias also, like, finally figure out who he is, and he's very much older as well, and it, we're slowly getting revealed what the original Watchmen are doing in modern times, and how they fit this modern dilemma they're dealing with, and this Tulsa, Oklahoma, so it kind of really makes it more like where they were the bigger picture of, you know, the world ending, that we're dealing with something a little bit smaller that they can still add to without being front and row and center. So it's great to see them there as supporting cast for this new crew of quote-unquote Watchmen trying to stop this Seven Cavalry cult-like, you know, white supremacist group who's running amok through Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I cannot wait to see where the story goes through the next episode, because now that we are getting revealed with new characters, or old characters, I should say, now we get to see what they're going to add to the story from here on out. So thank y'all for listening. This has been the review of episode three of HBO Max original series, The Watchmen. I have been one Mike for Hire, the podcast mercenary, the Puerto Rican powerhouse himself, Cristian Joel Ramos, signing off. Until next time, as always, take care and stay safe.